0: As most of you probably already know, our presenter tonight is Bishop Kevin Rhodes. Um, bishop Rhodes has served the diocese since January 2010 when he was appointed by Pope Benedict XVI. Um, he currently serves on the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family, Life, and Youth, and is also as a consultant for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Pro-Life Activities. Um, we are very honored to have him tonight. Uh, the bishop actually chose this topic himself, um, fitting in with our theme of unity and diversity. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I'm, very, I'm sure we're all excited to hear what he has to say about that. So without further ado, Bishop Kevin Rhodes.
1: Okay. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Emily. Um, it's great to be back, to be with you again. I love coming to Theology on Tappan and to see so many of you here tonight. And uh, to speak on this topic, I chose it. Sean asked, what do I want to speak about? And I thought, well, what might be interesting? What's going on in the world that I'd want to talk about? I said, how about religion and politics? <laughs> you know, our Catholic faith and voting. And um, so I think Sean was a little nervous that I had chosen this topic. He said, Bishop, are you sure? And I said, no, I think this is what's on people's minds. Everyone's talking about Hillary and Donald and and there's a lot of polarization, and there's a lot of, um, well, you know, more. uh, And I said, why not talk about what's happening from our Catholic perspective? And especially, I mean, politics is something that the church has a lot to say about. And um, after all, we are, as St. Augustine said, citizens of two cities. You know, the city of God and the city of man. Politics is part of the city of man. We don't live two parallel lives our lives need to be integrated. So how does our faith come into it? How does our faith into, enter into our political decisions? And I, I, so I think it's really important to, to think about this and, and to reflect on what the church teaches us about politics. And that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. And um, the, uh, if I can find my notes. Okay, here we go. You probably know that the United States Bishops, uh, some years ago, issued a document called "Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship," and a few years ago, when we revised that, I was one of the authors of part of it. So it was something I put a lot of thought into, and about you know how we approach um, this being citizens of heaven, our citizenship is in heaven, St. Paul writes to the Philippians, but we're also citizens on earth. And part of our earthly life is the social um, system and the political system in which we live. um, So the church does have uh, a lot to say on this matter. I think one of the things is people can tend to separate or split their faith from daily life and earthly realities, and that's wrong. That is a serious error. As a matter of fact, the Second Vatican Council spoke about it as being a serious age, a serious error of our age. This idea of kind of um, putting our faith over here, whereas our faith should inform everything. Our faith should inform. All of our decisions, including our political decisions. We shouldn't separate faith from life. We shouldn't separate the gospel from culture. And among our earthly responsibilities is politics. Uh, And our responsibility is to be faithful citizens. And to be a faithful citizen begins, as we bishops say in that document that I mentioned, we have to have a correctly formed conscience. That is fundamental. To make political choices, we must make prudential decisions that are based on well-formed consciences. Because when you vote, you're making a prudential decision. And that decision should come from a correctly formed conscience. And we have a serious obligation to form our consciences In all of our decision-making, you guys are making decisions all the time, important decisions, moral decisions in your life. And it's important to have a correctly formed conscience. And that is a conscience that's in accord with divine revelation, with the gospel and the teaching of the church, and also human reason. Human reason. So this is really a lifelong obligation, is to form our consciences. Our consciences aren't just formed... uh, when we're children, it's something that is lifelong. Um, it's not something. Sometimes people say, oh, "I'm following my conscience." They say it almost in a flippant way. But conscience is not something that allows us to justify doing whatever we want. A lot of people will talk about conscience that way, like, "This is what I feel." It's it's not a mere feeling about what we should do. Conscience isn't a mere feeling about what we should not do. Conscience is the voice of God resounding in the human heart, revealing the truth to us and calling to us to do what is good and to avoid what is evil. So it's something serious. Conscience requires serious attempts to make sound moral judgments based on the truths of our faith. Well, like other matters of decision-making in our lives, it's essential also when it comes to our political choices, our political choices, and our voting, that we make prudent decisions in light of a well-formed conscience. First requirement of this formation of our conscience, especially in the area of voting, is the desire to embrace goodness and truth. The desire to embrace goodness and truth. And this means that we're open and willing to seek the truth and what is good, what is right. And where do we look? Sacred Scripture. The teaching of the church. And then to look at the facts. The background information about the different choices that we make. Because we have to apply it. And then to pray. Prayerful reflection to discern the will of God. If we don't Form our consciences in the light of the truths of the faith and the moral teachings of the church, we can make erroneous judgments. Now, closely connected to this is the virtue of prudence. Prudence, it's really important. It has to do with discernment. So we look at different alternatives. For example, if you're looking at, you're, besides a, uh, when voting for a candidate, let's say, or even a piece of legislation, This is really important for legislators, especially Catholic um, public officials. Um, But but for us here, probably voting in an election, um, it's a matter of discernment. How do you choose between the different uh, alternatives? Not just for president, but for governor, for senator, for uh, uh, representatives. Um, We should do so with prudence. To deliberate over the different choices, the different alternatives, and to think and to determine who would be most fitting, um, or in a piece of legislation, what would be best. And then to, to move forward. This is how we build a society of justice and peace, is when we exercise this virtue of prudence um, that requires the courage to act in defense of moral principles when we're making decisions. One way to, um, uh, well, one way to look at making prudent decisions is to, um, and to form one's conscience, to see the situation, to make a judgment, and then to act. We have to discern what public policies are morally sound. We have to look at the, platforms of political candidates. Now, in many situations, there can be different judgments about the best means to respond to a social problem. Take something like poverty. There are committed Catholics who may come to a different uh, decision about who to vote for in this area. But we're all bound to embrace the principles of Catholic moral teaching, Catholic social teaching, And I'm going to talk about those a little bit later. But there are certain social problems where there are not different judgments that can be made. Okay, So there's areas where prudential judgment can be exercised following principles. But there are certain problems that involve what the church calls intrinsic evils. And there there's no room for different judgments. Something like abortion. Or euthanasia. Because the taking of innocent human life is always wrong. It's always and everywhere wrong. But if you're dealing with how to alleviate poverty, you might have different proposals about how to do that. And it's not always black and white. So there's room for prudential judgment. Um, So... The Church is saying that we must always reject intrinsic evils. We have an obligation to oppose intrinsic evils. So a Catholic, a good Catholic, a practicing Catholic, a good, good Catholic cannot not oppose abortion. We cannot condone it. Or euthanasia. And that one who does it is not living their faith. These are, there are certain things that can never be justified. Uh, what we call intrinsic evils. So, I mentioned abortion and euthanasia. There's others. Human cloning, destructive research on embryos, genocide, torture, terror, acts of racism, redefining marriage. These are all black and white issues. Now, they can't be justified. Now, we have to be careful not to just look at what are called negative duties. These are things that we have to oppose, but they also have a corresponding positive duty. It's not enough to, um, to be against these things. One also has to think of ways to promote life and the dignity of other people, etc., and peace and justice, contributing to the common good, caring for the poor, protection of the environment all these things respect for human life now there are two extremes that you can that we see that we must avoid and we really the bishops warn about these two extremes and you can think about if you know people or yourselves who might fall into one of these two extremes we shouldn't fall into either one is called moral equivalence and that is when a person doesn't make a distinction between different kinds of issues Involving human life and dignity. Um, For example, if someone says, uh, well, these issues are connected, but if you take abortion and you take capital punishment, they're very connected. They're both issues that have to do with life, human life, but they're not morally equivalent, Okay, the church's teaching um, is that, you know, the taking of innocent human life is always and everywhere wrong. The church teaches against capital punishment, but not in a way to say that it's never permissible. You know, Um, so they're not morally equivalent. If you take something, um, so there are certain issues that shouldn't be seen as... um, as as morally equivalent. Um, If you take poverty, for example, a very important issue, but it's not morally equivalent to, let's say, euthanasia. Okay, so anyhow. But now that's the one extreme, uh, moral equivalent, saying that all issues are of equal rate, uh, equal weight. But then there's the other extreme, which... um, is dismissing other issues or ignoring them and saying, okay, I'm only concerned about the issue of abortion and I don't care about other issues like the death penalty or harm to the environment or poverty. We can't dismiss these other issues. These are all moral issues that challenge our conscience and require us to do something. They're not optional concerns. We have to be concerned about poverty. But we don't put it on the same level as something like abortion or, or, or terror, those kind of issues. So, I want to make that clear. Now, in making moral choices, it can be very complex sometimes. That's why you need to use that virtue of prudence that I mentioned. So, any law or any policy that violates human life or weakens its protection... We have to always oppose, no question. Sometimes we can support laws that are morally flawed that that aren't perfect, it's like imperfect laws, imperfect legislation in order to limit their harm. Let's say, for example, there's a law to uh, prohibit abortion except in the cases of rape and incest. Well, that's not a perfect law because it's an innocent child in either case, but we can still support such a law because it's going to reduce abortion, it's limiting the harm. They provide some protection of unborn human life and there's some incremental improvement. Now, how do we apply Catholic social teaching to all these issues? Well, we have a big, I mean, they call it the church's best kept secret, our social teachings. We have a rich body of Catholic moral and social teaching on economic issues, including things like health care, housing, education, immigration, all these things. And we should look for the guidance of the church. The Pope and the bishops will often take positions, as you know, on these issues. Now, we don't speak with the same moral authority. If I'm speaking about housing or health care, it's not the same moral authority as when I speak about abortion or euthanasia. Because there are things of universal moral teaching, as I mentioned. But these other issues are important for us to carefully listen to what the bishops and the Pope say on these issues. Because we're applying Catholic social teaching. Now, there are principles that all Catholics should abide by. It's the application that there might be some uh, disagreement. So the principles are obligatory for us. And I want to talk about four principles of Catholic social teaching that I think are really important, especially as we approach this election. Number one, the dignity of the human person. Always number one. The dignity of every human life. From the womb to the tomb. The principle of subsidiarity. And I want to talk a little bit about that. The principle of the common good. And the principle of solidarity. You've probably heard these. I'm only going to talk about them a little bit, but... I encourage you to study them on your own. Um, You know, there's no other church, no other religious tradition that has such a deep and systematic teaching on social life. As a matter of fact, I have friends who are Protestant ministers and some Jewish rabbis, and and they'll often bring up issues of Catholic social teaching because most of them don't have a tradition like we have. So it's a very rich field of study and it needs to get more widely known. Um, I think sometimes when we look at these four principles, they can all be brought together under, really, one of them, the principle of the common good. We hear that term a lot, and a lot of people say, the common good, what does it mean? Well, the Second Vatican Council kind of gave a very succinct definition. It's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The common good is the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. Notice the common good it concerns the good of everyone. The common good. So, there are really three essential elements to this. First of all, it presumes the common good presumes the principle of respect for the life and dignity of the human person. Um, the first and most fundamental principle of Catholic moral and social teaching. So public authorities, and when you're thinking of, looking at candidates to vote for, really public authorities are bound to respect the fundamental and inalienable rights of the human person. Unfortunately, we have many candidates who don't respect the right to life. Another fundamental right of the human person, the right to religious freedom, you know, our first and most cherished liberty, which I never thought I'd see being diminished in my lifetime in the United States. Um, But it's happening. The common good, secondly, also requires the social well-being and development of the group itself. And I think this embraces two other principles, subsidiarity and solidarity. What is subsidiarity? The best definition I've ever seen is or ever read, was that of John Paul II. He said, a community of a higher order should not interfere in the internal life of a community of a lower order, depriving the lower order of its functions, but rather should support it in case of need and help to coordinate its activity with the activities of the rest of society, always with a view to the common good. Well, this is part of human dignity as well. So when you think about the state or the government should always respect and the authority, the the rights of the lower group, like the family, the rights of the family, the rights of parents to educate their children, etc. State should not interfere with those rights. It should be the family, the most fundamental group when we think about this, and this is the principle of subsidiarity, should be defended and strengthened. It shouldn't be undermined by the state. So basically, subsidiarity means that larger institutions in society should not overwhelm smaller or local institutions or interfere with them. And of course we see this too when you see a rebellion against federal government taking over rights of the state, for example. Uh, In our country... You know, we were founded with certain things about states' rights. That's really falling upon this principle of subsidiarity. Now, this doesn't mean the state should never interfere. The state has its role. But if a community or an institution of a lower order doesn't do its job, doesn't, for example, adequately protect human dignity, then the state should intervene. Now, this gets to the next principle solidarity. Now, if you had to say, okay, When you think of our political parties, who do you associate most with subsidiarity? Republicans. Now, when you hear about solidarity, you're probably going to think more about Democrats. So think about the Catholic Church. is kind of right here uh, proclaiming both these principles. So that's why it's really hard when you look at our political system. We don't have a political party that embodies, in the United States, that embodies these principles of Catholic social teaching. We have one party that defends one of the principles and another party that defends one of the other principles, and we're saying it's not either or. We're As Catholics, we're saying both and. We're saying subsidiarity and solidarity. We're saying the common good. We're saying respect for the life and dignity of every human person. It's really hard because which political party proclaims all those things. It's it's hard for us as Catholics, as committed Catholics. Anyhow, let's get to solidarity. Solidarity is clearly an obligation that we see in the gospel itself. It has to do with justice and charity. Now think about, and I'm getting anxious, some of you are going World Youth Day in Poland. Um, Under communist oppression, uh, there was a labor movement, as you probably know, called Solidarity in Poland. And um, they took that name, Solidarność. And John Paul was a great advocate. He spoke a lot about solidarity. I was a student in Rome at that time when the Solidarity Movement began. And I remember John Paul and his impassioned pleas from the the window of the papal apartments. You know, it ended up that the, the, the communist government in Poland fell and then fell throughout Eastern Europe and even in the Soviet Union. But that was inspired by Catholic social teaching. That's why that labor movement took that name. And it was following this principle of solidarity and the defense of the rights of workers. So we have to be, so basically solidarity is saying we have to be concerned about our fellow human beings and their well-being, especially the poor. And it's not just, solidarity isn't just this vague feeling of compassion, or some distress that's kind of shallow because of the misfortunes of other people. But it's really a firm determination, a persevering determination to do something about it, to commit oneself to the common good. That is to say the good of all and every individual, because we're really responsible for all. We are our brother's keeper. John Paul was real strong on that, you know, you know the story of Cain and Abel. Um, so it has to do with the good of our neighbor. And this isn't just our fellow Americans. Catholic teaching, we have to be for all people. Everyone living on this planet, there needs to be solidarity. We should be concerned about the social conditions of everyone. The poor, immigrants, the sick, the suffering, the oppressed, the persecuted. Solidarity is not only a principle, it's a virtue. And only when there's solidarity is there true peace. As a matter of fact, that was the motto of Pope Pius XII. Think about this. This is during World War II. And Pope Pius XII's motto was Opus Justitiae Pax. Peace as the fruit of justice. And then St. John Paul II took this, Opus Justitiae Pax, and he said, Opus Solidaritas Pax. Peace as the fruit of solidarity. Peace. This is a a third essential element of the common good. Um, The stability and the security of a just order in our nation and in the world. And that's a job of public authority, should ensure this, by morally acceptable means. The security of society and its members. It's the basis of the right to legitimate personal and collective defense. The right to defend our country, for example. So, in the political realm, now getting more practical again with these principles in mind, we have to recognize it's the role of the state to defend and promote the common good. So that's what you should be asking yourself before you vote. Which candidate is going to serve the common good? The citizens and all the intermediate bodies. In which candidate do I see um, these principles, respect for the dignity of every human life? They recognize the rights of the family and the lower orders. It's not all state control, subsidiarity. Solidarity, concern for all of our neighbors, those who are poor. And and, and the common good isn't just the good of Americans. Keep that in mind. The common good, you know, God didn't create these national boundaries. There's a universal common good. We're all brothers and sisters on this earth. So we all have a responsibility to promote the common good. We already do it. You, in our family, among our friends, we promote the good of one another in our work. But we also have a responsibility in politics because that's the aim. The aim of politics should be to serve the common good, the aim, the purpose of the state, The purpose of government should be to serve the common good. So when we vote, we should ask ourselves which candidate we believe will best serve the common good. And each of us is obliged to promote the common good through our political participation. You know, this is a moral obligation, according to the Catholic Church, to be involved politically. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard a priest say, you know, we have an obligation to vote. A moral obligation to be responsible citizens, to participate in political life. So if you're not registered, get registered. Now, the role of bishops and priests is not to tell you who to vote for. You know, I'm not up here saying vote for so-and-so. But my obligation, and, and right, is, is to hand on the church's moral and social teaching. And to help you, to help Catholics, to form their consciences correctly... We don't endorse or oppose particular candidates. Um, lay people can do that. Uh, lay people can run for public office. You know, I'd like to vote for Cardinal Dolan for president, but he's not. Uh, but you know, the po- he's not allowed to run. Um, lay people can work with political parties. Priests can't. Bishops can't. But we can vote. Um, As Catholics, uh, this is really an obligation to participate because it shapes the moral character of our society. And we should bring to the public square what our faith teaches about things like human dignity, about the sacredness of human life. Um, Some people want to shut the church up. I mean, I speak out on an issue like the truth about marriage and the family, or if I speak up on economic justice, dignity of work, care for the environment, just treatment of immigrants, we get attacked but I have every right to. I'm not getting polit- say, say, oh, you're getting political. No, these are moral issues. These are moral issues that have to do with human dignity. They're not optional topics of our faith. We bring our principles. Principles so important for society and culture. And we should bring our, and we must bring our moral convictions to the public square. And this contributes to the well-being of society and culture when we do. And we bring, what's interesting about the Catholic Church, we bring a consistent moral framework for assessing issues. We have a real consistent moral framework to look at political platforms and campaigns. We also bring a lot of experience. I mean, who has more experience in things like health care, education, social services, than the Catholic Church? Um. A lot of talk on economic issues. I just want to mention this briefly um, because this is an area that a lot of people vote, as they say, according to their pocketbook. So economic issues, and you see some very big differences between our political parties. It's interesting how the Catholic Church rejects socialism and it rejects unbridled capitalism. So nobody likes us because we reject both these things. <laughs> but both can be idolatrous. Think about that. Because socialism, it's an idolatry of the state. And unbridled capitalism, it's the idolatry of money. So the principles in considering economic issues are again the fundamental principles of Catholic social doctrine. The common good, the dignity of the human person, subsidiarity, and solidarity. Now, I want to finish by say that the Catholic Church values democracy. Because democracy allows the people to participate in making political choices. And that's good. It allows the people to not only elect those who govern us, it allows us to hold them accountable. So it's a blessing to live in the United States. But I think we have to be mindful of these words of St. John Paul II. Authentic democracy is possible only in a state ruled by law and on the basis of a correct conception of the human person. I think there is a real danger, serious danger, to the welfare of the United States and in many European nations today. because of what John Paul said 25 years ago, the danger of relativism. The idea that truth is determined by the majority or that truth is subject to variation according to different political trends. Because when we sever freedom from truth, it threatens the common good. As history demonstrates, John Paul wrote, a democracy without values easily turns into open or thinly disguised totalitarianism. It's very dangerous. Our founding fathers, you can read George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, John Adams, they all wrote about how the American experiment would not succeed if it isn't founded upon people who have moral values and principles that are really... um, And virtue, they talk about, the importance of virtue. Otherwise, um, they said, this this experiment won't work. And that's, I think, really important. Um, There is a certain... Like I was talking about the erosion of religious liberty in our country today it 's slow it 's not open persecution we 're not near what they 're experiencing the violent persecution in the Middle East for being a Catholic or Christian. but there's what 's called a soft persecution, and it 's growing. Um, I forget John uh, Pope Francis had a word for that. I just wrote about it in a column today 's Catholic. Um, So we have to be really careful when it's kind of where freedom becomes license and there's moral values are discarded. There's an opposite danger, though, and that's fanaticism or fundamentalism. The claim in the name of a religious or a scientific ideology of the right to impose on other people one's own concept of what is true and good. Now, some will say, Well, that's the Catholic Church. They're trying to impose their views on the rest of us. um, But when you think about it, the truth that we adhere to as Christians isn't an ideology. The Catholic Church constantly reaffirms what? The truth of the transcendent dignity of the human person. We have a profound respect for freedom true freedom, but not the freedom to kill the innocent. Not the freedom to redefine marriage, but freedom that is rooted in the truth. The truth that's known not only by faith, but by right reason. And so when human rights are not fully respected, it's very dangerous for democracy. The common good crumbles. So I encourage your active participation in politics, your faithful citizenship. The culture of our nation is affected by its values. The church and all its members have a responsibility to bring our values to the public square. And as the uh, the founding fathers of our nation knew very well, the health of our democracy requires a foundation. God-given inalienable rights in order for our nation to adore, uh, endure. We are citizens of two worlds, don't forget that. Two cities. And We shouldn't lose sight of our responsibilities in either. We should be patriotic, but we shouldn't be nationalistic. We should be active in political life, but we shouldn't be more Republican or more Democrat than we are Catholic. We should be proud of our freedom as Americans, but even more proud of the freedom with which Christ sets us free. Thank you. I have a question that a lot of people have asked me that you might, well let me ask, uh, you might be asking the question, but as I was walking around a bit, everyone who asked me a question, it was all the same question about is it ever permissible not to vote in a situation. Was that what you were gonna ask? Let, but yeah, uh, I'll, let me answer that and then, in other words, and you can see in the pamphlet, uh, there's a question, if no single party or candidate in a given election conforms to our key Catholic principles, what are we to do? And then it goes through um, some of the things that I did talk about, like you can never let's say if someone's pro-choice, it would be immoral to vote for that person because they're pro-choice. I mean, that's... um, But it goes on to talk about various things. But then in the end, the last paragraph, which is on the, the top of the next part, it says, there may even be occasions when some Catholic voters feel that they must take the extraordinary step of not voting for any candidate. This, too, is a serious decision that must be guided by one's conscience and the moral teachings of our faith. This is the first time in my lifetime that I have felt, and and many people who've talked to me, feel that in this election, at least when it comes to the president, they're feeling this way. I say to those people, well, it is extraordinary. Um, um, you may want to, and I think they can take, you know, I, I've heard various arguments on this. Uh, you could always write some name in, uh, or, but I would still say vote because there's other offices, the governor and representatives and all that, so it's still important to vote. But if you really feel in conscience, not feel, I don't want to get that confused. If you really, in, in, your, in your discernment, in your conscience, believe that you can't vote for either, I think this extraordinary step. But I, I, I can't tell people that. I think it's, it's something we all, myself included, have to search in my conscience about what to do. But I think it is extraordinary. Often we can choose what we might call the lesser of two evils. You hear that? Um, but some people are in a real bind where they just don't feel right about voting for either. And I think you could keep that in mind, that that's kind of extraordinary, but it is a possibility. You know, the church uses, presents that as a possibility. Um, but I think first, you really do pray a lot about it. You think about it. You, you do have to study the positions. You have to... Um, um, but I, I think that's an it's expressed well in this pamphlet. But go ahead.
0: Yeah. So um, my question was: so you have your wait. Okay, so you convinced me that I should vote. But I come and I you had the, like the one question that you ask when you go into the voting booth, and it's like, which candidate is going to best support the common good? But it seems to me like there's a second question that, especially in this upcoming presidential election, would be in our minds, and it would be like, how is my vote going to best support the common good? And so I guess. It kind of goes to the example that you highlighted. You know, like, I could vote in, like, a, write in a third party or like, vote, or, like, write in a name, vote third party. Um, but in a way, like, what if I think that third party is, like, not a viable, electable, like, option? And so it's kind of like throwing my vote away. So how do I balance, like, standing um, strong in my ideals of, like, what's the, what a candidate should support, like, what um, promotes the common good... And then having almost like a view towards the consequences of my, my vote. Like, would it be permissible to vote for someone who you don't like, necessarily think is the best candidate, but you think that by not voting for them, something worse is going to happen?
1: I think what you're saying is a very plausible in our, in our faith. I think that's, that's probably what you should first consider before considering leaving the not voting on that candidate. I think doing exactly what you said, because remember, by not voting, you're not, you know, um, your voice is then not being heard. But you could be in that genuine dilemma of saying, I just can't vote for either. I mean, the person could find themselves in that. But I think what you're saying could also be true, that one really dislikes both and their positions. But after serious discernment thinks... But if I had to choose one of the two, I think this one would do less harm, or this one would have certain things that would be positive. Um, but that takes a lot of discernment. I'll be honest with you. I've been a voter since the age of eighteen, so it goes way back, and I, I uh, you know, I don't remember ever being in this kind of the dilemma now, I always, you know, it was always kind of, I wouldn't say easy, but relatively easy to decide who to vote for. Now, I will say on other offices, governor and all that too, you have to do the same thing. Senator, congressman, etc. Sometimes it's very clear to me, yeah, this person clearly um, expresses and stands up for the values that I hold dear, that we Catholics believe in. So, it can be, Well, oftentimes it's not, not difficult to choose. But I find this year is the most difficult that I've experienced in my lifetime. So I think a lot of people, so that's why I said there is that extraordinary step of not voting. But I think a person in good conscience could choose what they consider to be the lesser of two evils, so to speak, or the one who's going to have less harm. But yeah. I
0: think we have another question over here.
1: Thank you, Your Excellency. Um,
0: you've spoken a couple times about the importance of this discernment. Um, and particularly with regards to this election coming up, could you speak a bit
1: more on, as to what, what is involved in this particular type of discernment? Okay. I always begin – thank you. Great question, Dan. I always begin with the fundamentals. The life and dignity of the human person. I mean, automatically, if someone is pro-choice, I have a problem. You know, so I begin with those key fundamental issues. But then I'm not in that point where I discard the other issues. Then I consider all the other things, the other principles of Catholic teaching, um, everything from their stance on immigration to their stance on on marriage to their stance on uh, economic issues, etc., and I will weigh all of that in the process of discernment. But I always begin with the fundamental things. What I talked about at the beginning is where they stand on some of these issues about intrinsic evil, because um, they're fundamental in my mind. So that's where I start. But then I also think about all the other th- other issues, and then pray about it. I pray about it. Um, but that means you have to be informed. You have to study. Their positions. Watch the debates. Now I realize sometimes watching the debates, you know, can be a little harrowing, but it's uh, um, you do get an idea about the person from watching their debates or their written policy. I would look at the party platforms. You know, um, read the the party platforms. Um, you know, there's a voting record. Now, obviously, Donald Trump doesn't have a voting record. Uh, Hillary does. Um, but you can find out what their stances are and things. I mean, we have to be informed about their positions, um, you know. And even when it comes to other offices, it's important to try to get informed about the positions of the people running for office. Don't just go in there and and vote for someone because you recognize their name, uh, you know. Know what they stand for, or you know. So hopefully that helps. Any other questions?
0: Bishop, this is a mostly serious question. Oh. Um, Come November, would there be the possibility of having a confessional
1: set up at each voting booth? (laughs) That's a good idea. (laughs) Uh, Okay.
0: Okay, we have one other question as well. All right. So my question is in regards to solidarity. Um, you were kind of making it out as a political party sort of view, but I kind of look at it more as like
1: everyone's really looking for the common good. We both, you know, think that we're both trying to, you know, have that solidarity. We just disagree on ways of getting there. Yeah. Um, and I kind of think that that's the most important thing that needs to come to the forefront, you know, that... We both we need to say, hey, we're both trying to get there the same way,
0: you know, but we just have different ways. Yeah,
1: and that's why I was trying to get where there's certain prudential judgments, especially on economic issues, and things like that. Although I do think some principles do enter into when, when you look at that issue of solidarity, I do find it disturbing, though, when um, because when I I question the commitment to that principle. For example, on matters such as immigration, okay, so I think the principle yeah where we're, yeah where someone the the idea of of um, the massive deportation of undocumented persons and or break up of families and all that it, i believe is is not only a a, a a rejection of the principle of, of solidarity—it's basically failing to love our neighbor. And I think um, so. I—I I, I partially agree with what you said because I don't. I, but I can't. I can't, for the life of me, think of someone who is advocating for those things. How are they serving the principle of solidarity in that situation? That would be an example.
0: serve the common good, so how can we get there, I guess?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, and there, I agree with you, there there's different paths. There's different paths, exactly. Um, but I think some have positions that that aren't serving that path, aren't on any path that's serving that, is what I meant. Yeah, yeah. But I do think there are different people who have different opinions about how to do comprehensive immigration reform that could be differences but yet trying to serve the principle that you just mentioned.
0: Thank you so much, Bishop Rhodes.
1: (laughs) Thank you.